Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. I'm Kirk O'Bear. I'm John Birdsall. How are you doing, Kirk? Very, very well. A um, couple things so I want to hear. Well, I know. Well, I thought you'd be pleased to know. Um, how are you? I am equally well. Um, equally well. It's, yeah, well, it's fall, and um, I love fall because it's gorgeous and it's uh, temperate weather, and um, and of course Christmas right around the corner. So yeah, you're a big fan like, of Christmas. I know that from what's not going like? over the years. You, you get way into Christmas. Yeah. Like you should see. Well, especially the Milwaukee office, because we have two offices, the Sheboygan office and the Milwaukee office. But because John spends most of his time in the Milwaukee office, it ends up being like a winter wonderland. Uh, well, I intend to I intend to do the same for the Sheboygan office. Well, we did. We did pretty well last With year. Some assistance from uh, right. one of our star paralegals. So when we get into that time of year, I always know. Uh, there's certain times of the evening where I can't bother John to talk about law firm business or cases because his eyes and ears will be glued to the Hallmark channel <laughs> <laughs> watching uh, well, yes, well, Christmas shows. So, Well, you know, sometimes your mind needs that redirection from, you know, okay. well, legal, work, legal work to, um, you know, uh, Christmas fantasies. So, Is there a term for, you know, how they have like... Um, rom-coms and things like that is is it like a x-mance or something like that um, um I, I don't know but we could make one up let me work on that i'll get back to you next week all right sounds good hey a couple things i want to talk about today one is um i didn't even have a chance to tell you about this earlier in the week john but i know i've told you and i've actually talked about this case on the show before but 17 years ago i had a case in federal court, I was representing a defendant in what became known as the Cherry Street Mob Conspiracy Trial. And there were, I think, 40-something co-conspirators, 42 co-conspirators that were all charged. And this was back before a lot of the, uh, basically, revisions that we've seen in both sentencing guidelines and the application of mandatory minimums and so forth took effect. And my client was one of the three out of 42 that went to trial in the Eastern District of Wisconsin. Um, he was, and this isn't even debatable, the lowest person on the totem pole or on the, uh, you know, the chain. Mm-hmm. The least involved, the had the least amount of activity, arguably the least amount of, you know, drugs attributable to his actual activity. And this was such a bizarre situation because the way that the federal government, like we were talking about last week, tends to charge things. They go all out, right? They charged him with uh, being responsible for what we call a conspiracy weight, the weight of drugs that the entire conspiracy is, um, is can be attributed to that, you know, so-called conspiracy. He was um, some of the drugs that were being dealt for up to 13 years before he was even born were attributed to him. That sounds absolutely crazy, but that is the way that the law was and technically still it is, is crazy. Yeah. And it has to do with knowledge of the extent of the conspiracy and then doing anything to further that conspiracy, even if you weren't born yet. So, um, you know, there had been a very long history of cocaine, specifically crack dealing in that zip code in Wisconsin, which is the highest incarcerated zip code in the country. Um, 
that part of Milwaukee that we're all familiar with. And the feds did a huge, you know, clean sweep of that particular neighborhood or so that's what they characterized it as and arrested lots and lots of people, anybody that had anything to do with this whole issue, whether it be by familial relation, friendships, whatever they brought everybody in. And as we know about these cases, they start at the bottom and they try and work sort of this mushroom uh, you know, paradigm where people that have um, the least to lose end up getting the most benefit. The people that have the most to lose get, get also a lot of benefit depending on whether they're cooperating or not. So it all has to do with pointing the finger at other people. That's how these conspiracy things unravel, so to speak in court. And unfortunately, a topic that's near and dear to both of us, but especially with a lot of the work that you've done, John, um, as we know, back then and even today, the um, rate of cases that don't go to trial, especially in federal court, is hovering in that 97 percent range where. Yeah, this is this is just I knew this is where you were headed with this. Um, the trial penalty, it's just um, uh, something that. We know about um, because we work in the system, but in the popular imagination, <laughs> right? Yeah, right. Every case goes to trial. Every you know? case goes to trial. Right. It, it's if yeah. you watch Law and Order, that's what happens, right? Well, even if you watch court TV, you know, yeah, and, um, the ones that are going to trial are the ones that are on court TV, right? Right, because that's all they. That's literally. By the, by the way, just a sneak preview: um, the second half of the show, I want to talk about the Daryl Brooks trial and all the circus that's going on with that i have been i have been when i have time like in the evening i've been watching extended portions of that and um i have uh i have many comments but to get back to your well i'm sorry you were probably making a point about like um this guy gets so many years of where he would have gotten yeah well he got he got the probation or something he got the most number of years you can get which is life okay um he was (laughs) 17 years old when he got charged, 18 years old by the time the case went to trial. He had two predicate uh, controlled substance violation, I mean, convictions, one for possession of marijuana with intent to distribute, and then another, which was a simple possession of marijuana, but was a felony because it was a repeater enhancer. So what happened was he was in Milwaukee County Circuit Court. Um, he was seventeen, uh, sixteen, just turned seventeen. He got popped for uh, possession with intent to distribute. He got he was tried as an adult because I believe he had turned seventeen by the time the the case actually was resolved. He had a public defender. This is not a slam on public defenders. I'm just kind of giving the background. But um, this was in Milwaukee. It, he came up for an initial appearance. They basically pled guilty at his initial appearance after meeting with a public defender for about, you know, six minutes or so, um, they enter a plea of guilty. He gets sentenced to one year in prison. He had a juvenile record. Okay. So he gets a year in prison for this, which was kind of weird. Um, now I should say he didn't, he didn't get sentenced right away. He, they had his case. He enters a plea. He's supposed to come back in about 30, 45 days. I don't even think they did a pre-sentence investigation, but just because of court congestion, they say, come back. So while he's out, he gets popped in possession of a marijuana joint. I mean, a joint, a joint. And they charge him with possession, simple possession, but because he has a conviction that just got entered about a month before, now it's a felony. So 
Uh, he comes for sentencing and because the judge was back then, that was mandatory. It was mandatory. The judge was none too pleased that he had picked up another drug conviction while he was awaiting sentencing. So he ends up getting a year in prison. He goes off to prison. He comes back. He's back home for all of, I think it was four months when the feds came down on these conspiracy charges and rounded up everyone in his family, everyone, all of his, uh, you know, cousins, acquaintances. I think their dogs got indicted as well. Just everybody. And because the government had the, has the discretion. I highlight discretion here because that's, that sounds like it's a good thing, but it's really a bad thing in this situation. They said they charge certain people with having sufficient repeater. I mean, sufficient predicate enhancers. I think it's under what? 941 C something like that. Mm -hmm. um, where it kicks in a mandatory life sentence where only the prosecutor has the ability to change that by not filing these, you know, enhancement requests with the judge. So what happens is, you know, I get on the case, we talk about things. He knows little to nothing about this stuff. Um, he and two others end up going to trial. He's got the most to risk because he has these priors yet again, had very, very li little limited involvement. I think they had like four buys that he was involved with, but because they had the power to really hold the hammer over his head, there was an assumption, which is a, a very common assumption that when he sees that he's facing life in prison, that he will say, Oh heck no, I'm going to go ahead and point the finger and testify against all these other people. Meanwhile, he's the most immature most inexperienced and probably had way too much faith in what he thought was the integrity of, um, I don't know, what do you want to call it? The bond with which those in the quote unquote cherry street mob would stick together, which was a, a terrible overestimation on his part. And we'll get to what happened when we come back right after these messages. You're back with more legal defense with Kirk and John. So, Kirk, it's, you were you were um, laying the groundwork. I'm sorry. Yeah, laying the groundwork. Yeah, yeah, for a discussion that is really important um, about uh, the um, the way that the system is stacked, especially in drug cases, especially in federal court, but. Um, uh, but both federal and state and drug cases, everything's stacked against you. And you're right. Everybody expects that um, everybody on the prosecution side, at least, and the judges too, I imagine, expect everybody, all the defendants who are charged to just roll over and, and, right. and snitch. And one of the reasons in federal court is because if you manage to catch yourself in a conspiracy where there's a mandatory minimum of five, 10 years, um, then the only way around that is to cooperate with the government right. by law. They right. are the only ones that can make the motion. The judge can't even do it. I they, just they, had a discussion with a client earlier this week who was commenting on the fact that can't we do anything about the fact that the government in these situations in federal court has so much power to decide whether a mandatory minimum applies or not based simply on their charging decision and their willingness or unwillingness to change that charge. Because when in this case, I know I've told you about it before, JP Stadmuller was the judge and, 
we had a trial. It was a three week long trial. There were a lot of issues, but ultimately my client and the other two did get convicted. And I was talking about how we got there. And basically, as I said, the prosecutors believed that, you know, he would just not have the courage or, or um, if, if he came around to his senses. Meanwhile, the guy is 18, just got out of prison. Um, and honestly, just factually speaking from all their evidence, yes, I mean, his involvement was extremely minimal. But because of the way that they get all these instructions and all this stuff they get to bring in, and the jury is basically forced to consider the larger scope of the conspiracy. And then it comes down to basically, did he know about it or not? And then do anything, any little thing, mm-hmm. you know, to further it. So, and that, and that could mean, be, that could be riding along in a car during a drug deal. That could right. be, you know, um, picking, up, picking up a money order at Walmart, you know, picking up something for somebody else. Yep. Right. They, you know, picking up some, uh, you know, lunch, sandwiches for somebody who's out on a drug but I don't know could be anything. and that you know and that's by the way one of the things that they do is they um uh they get all the girlfriends yes and um and then they tell the girlfriends well you know you're looking at uh 15 to 20 years and you're going to lose your kids so do you want right. to cooperate um you, I mean it's your decision but you know I mean come on so so I I think that the I'm not going to say I think I know the mentality here was that certain people had this false belief that if you follow the chain all the way to the top, that the real people who were running this drug conspiracy, that the high end people, the ones that were making literally millions of dollars off of this, wouldn't turn their backs on the capos or underlings that were part of this so-called organization. They were dead wrong because the, the kingpin, the leader, the one that easily probably should have gotten life in prison immediately got into bed with the government and started snitching on everyone all the way down. So even though the prosecutors made that, you know, full abundantly clear to my client and others, there was this belief that they're just, um, you know, posturing, they're, they're lying, whatever. So (laughs) in spite of my efforts to give good advice, this guy wanted to go to trial. I was there. We did a trial. It was a good trial, except for the fact that the law is not great. You know, when it comes to a lot of things. So he gets convicted. Government comes in and says, yes, even though he's the youngest and arguably the least involved of all this, he didn't cooperate with the government. And that's why we have these mandatory life sentences in these situations for people who won't cooperate with the government. That sounds terrible, but, you know, prosecutors say that all the time because they know that the courts and the legislature agrees with that very concept that these mandatory minimums are supposed to be tools in the toolbox of a prosecutor to basically coerce. They won't use the word coerce, but strongly encourage cooperation against other defendants. In the, in the, so anyway, you've appeared many times before uh, Stab Mueller. You know that mm-hmm. he's he's not like you're you know going to give anybody um, a big sloppy kiss at sentencing for a drug case, right? <laughs> um, right? But I remember him commenting that the way that the penalty structure has set up in a case like this, and how this guy was the perfect example of how the system, and he's talking about the legislature. 
and the Sentencing Commission have set this up in such a way that it is purely draconian and frankly un-American. And he laid out a record about how this is just plain wrong, but his hands are tied. So, you know, those mandatory minimums. Yeah. So, so, you know, he's like, there are all kinds of things I should consider and would consider and would give a very different sentence. However, thank your legislators for making this law because I have to follow it. I, it's not in my hands. It's somewhere else. And he used the word draconian. Well, Fast forward to earlier this week. Um, I'll just fill in some of the gaps. Along the way, I appealed this case to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. I raised all sorts of arguments relating to separation of powers, the the way that the statute had been drafted and written and appe- approved and, and a whole, whole slurry of things. And then I took that case to the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, and I was hopeful that they would take the case. It actually sat in committee or a conference, you know, their um, paralegals or, and staff attorneys, they, they'll hold on to it. Sometimes they'll get a writ for um, a petition for cert and they'll immediately say, nope. Or, and sometimes they'll sit on it for a while and they'll discuss it kind of on a monthly basis. Like, is this a case we want to take? Well, it sat in this, you know, on, in these um, cert committees amongst the judges and their staff for roughly 10 months and I was very hopeful that they would end up um, accepting the case. Ultimately, they didn't. So I kept in touch with him and his family over the years. I came up with some other creative ideas, none of which went anywhere. This guy is basically just going to have to serve a life sentence. It's always been something in the back of my conscience as an utter failing on my part, not because, you know, well, I didn't win the trial. Obviously, you know, I didn't obviously that wasn't true, but. Yeah. So. <laughs> Earlier this week, Tuesday of this week, Judge Stabmuller issues an order. And, and what, what's been going on is that since, I, what is it called, the First Step Act, um, yep. which, was, which is kind of the, the final piece in a series of um, changes in the law that relate to how mandatory minimums, how uh, specifically sentencing guidelines were at the time. This was 17 years ago, by the way, when it was probably at its worst. And there were a series of changes, modifications, et cetera, that were made in the process that made it so to try and um, alleviate what we call the powder versus crack sentencing disparity. One thing that had not been addressed by any of that legislation was what happens in this particular individual's case where he had a mandatory life sentence because of his predicate priors. Well, there is a provision in the First Step Act that actually gives the judge discretion to, for the first time ever, to grant relief in this particular scenario. And guess what, John? He did. He did. J.P. Stabmuller reduced his sentence from life to 24 years. And so he's got a bit to serve yet, you know, roughly five. But up until Tuesday, this guy was looking at life with no hope of anything, you know, being in a maximum security federal prison. And not surprisingly, I, and he commented on this on his decision. I'll, I'll actually forward you a copy because it's a great read. My client did, was not doing well. He um, got, he'd been seriously physically assaulted. I mean, to the point where he required reconstructive jaw surgery at one point, but also 
had some, you know, behavioral conduct issues. He was caught several times with, a, you know, a fashioned weapon in his cell. He was also caught with drugs in his cell. And the judge said, well, those don't reflect well on him. And this is the best part of his decision. However, when one is serving a life sentence with no hope for redemption, I can only imagine how one's outlook on life might play out. Yeah, right. So he basically said, well, you don't get a pass for those things. However, it's understandable because of the situation he was in. So I feel the case that I've probably felt the worst about my entire career actually has some uh, light at the end of the tunnel now. And I, I'm overjoyed to tell you the truth. Did you um, get to talk to him? Not yet. I mean, it's been four days, three days since it happened. So I'm going to reach out for sure. Maybe go visit him in Florida. Um, you know, might get some golfing while I'm doing that. But anyway, well, you know, yeah. you know, so this story is, we got to take a break. dude. Okay. We'll take a break and we'll be right back. Sorry, sorry to cut you off, John. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I know I did most of the talking for the <laughs> first half of the show. That's okay. I love listening to you. I'm gonna. Oh, I love listening to me too. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm gonna invite John to uh, provide some wrap up comments on that issue before we move on to the Brooks trial. Yeah. Well, you know, as I was saying before, I mean, the whole popular notion of the criminal legal system or maybe we should start calling it the criminal punishment system is the popular notion is that everything goes to trial because they're sexy and they're like combative and they're suspenseful and there's dramatic and all that. Right. And that's what TV makes it. Law and order makes it like that. Dude, um, I, I know our listeners can't see this, but you are wearing, <laughs> a, wearing law a law and order shirt right now. And the reason is, is because my son worked on the show once um, <laughs> years ago, uh, but uh, and I insisted that he get me some swag, but uh, and and those those movies and TV shows they're a blast to watch, um, uh, but they're so far from reality, um, and they don't show the seamy underside of that system, uh, which is what you just described. What you described was the norm, uh, the unfortunate norm um, in the sixties, seventies like 30, 35% of cases went to trial. And now it's down to three. And so there's no accident. That was a very specific design by both the United States Congress and most state legislators, leg legislatures. So um, that is something that has always been a burr in my saddle and yours too, I know. And at our firm, we, we don't take the attitude of, Oh, hi, Mr. Client. Have a seat. Um, yeah, we think we should start talking about a plea deal right now. <laughs> you know, right. what we do is we, we do what, um, I think the ethical rules require us to do, which is sit down and get all the evidence, go through it and try to find a way to win. Right. And only, only after you exhausted every possible route of investigation, um, or, you know, legal strategy, then you could entertain the possibility of having a discussion about a plea offer, you know, and, and, and that's the way it should be. And that's why a lot of our cases do end up going to trial and we get a lot of victories, right? Because we turn over a lot of, you know, <laughs> turn over every rock, but well, speaking of, we just had another one this week, a big, yeah. big, uh, big win. Yeah. Um, 
sexual assault trial that was, uh, and this is even better than getting a not guilty verdict when the prosecutor says, I no longer believe that I can prove the case, so I'm dismissing in the middle of trial. That yeah, which is another way of saying my victim is lying. Right. So, um, and there's and there's a ton of cases like that in the sexual assault arena. Um, but there's also a lot of like super thin cases um, in drug cases. And um, and now it's getting even more mixed because um, marijuana has become legalized so many places around the country, not in Wisconsin yet, but um, that there's there's sort of a mixed I don't know, signal on the war on drugs at this point, but, um, and a lot of the really super harsh penalties that were in place when your client went to trial, um, have been not eliminated, but softened somewhat, you know, not quite as harsh, but they're still pretty harsh. You know, it reminds me of one of those thriller movies where someone's at the top of a 110 story building on the roof. And there is some sort of, you know, parkour, I don't know, you know, running around and then someone ends up uh, on the edge of the building, hanging on by their fingers, maybe even their fingernails before they fall off. That's Wisconsin (laughs) holding on to the notion that marijuana still needs to be illegal. I mean, we're going to hopefully will not end up being the very last state, but you know, well, that actually just reminded me of, uh, I don't know if it was Bugs Bunny or um, (laughs) Roadrunner, but one of those, had you know it was a, that was a regular feature of somebody just like and then they're flipping up and then somebody else will like pick off the fingers so they can't hold on anymore right anyway um there is some talk about uh or at least amusing about getting marijuana out of schedule one which is there's five schedules in the right. controlled substances act and schedule one is reserved for the most you know dangerous and addictive ones like heroin that have, have no medical and LSD whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. And they, and they plug marijuana in there. Well, that was very purposeful because that was done in 1970 um, by Congress. Uh, You know, that was a very purposeful reaction to the sixties protests and, and all that. So um, I don't know, you know, that all we can do you and I is just to keep doing what we're doing and try and be an example to young lawyers that they need to um, step up their game despite the odds. Cause you know, when we were young and trying cases, just when we were, you know, baby lawyers, um, uh, the, 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 the penalties were just unbelievably harsh, you know, mm-hmm. and, and they still are. Uh, but I think, I think a lot of people have given up the idea that, um, uh, trial should be their first thought, right? And 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 I think that's a real shame. Well, it's funny because that's, that's what sort of the bedrock. What the system, when you look at the rules and the structure and the Constitution and everything else, actually does contemplate that this is about trials. You know, yeah, um, exactly right. Anyway, speaking of lawyers, let's talk about a case where there isn't one, and. Okay. Um, uh, it's been Brooks. Mr. Brooks. I think today is well. Yes, Friday is day fourteen, 16, or 16, 16 yeah, yeah, of the trial, and it's been on court TV. It's been. I saw Dan Abrams even had it on his new show, um, uh, just talking about the stuff that's been going on, including the uh, ongoing sparring with the judge, uh, both on the record and off the record. Um, Earlier this week, 
Well, after the prosecution had called all of its witnesses, it shifted over to the defense's turn and Brooks got up and, and gave this rambling, you know, uncontrollably sobbing, incoherent sort of opening statement. But the, the thing that this highlights is I, I want to talk about a couple things in this context. First of all, Judge uh, Darrow is, um, in my opinion, doing her absolute best <laughs> to try and keep this. I mean, I know what Brooks is doing. You know what he's doing. He's uh, somewhere along the line. He read a case or a jailhouse lawyer said, Hey, all you got to do to win on appeal is throw enough issues out there and you'll win, you know, ask to represent yourself. And if they, if they deny it, you win. Cause there is a case that talks about that. If they let you, yeah. then you're, you know, you'll make a bunch of, you'll do a bunch of things and then it'll come up on appeal and they'll reverse your conviction. Well, ask you know, ask for that, you know, so I actually went to the trial um, early on. You almost uh, ended up getting uh, Shanghai to juror. <laughs> I, was, I went during jury selection, and um, uh, we could talk about that too, but I did not like the way it was being conducted. But then again, it was a very unusual circumstance because um, the judge was doing all the questioning, and usually the lawyers do it in state court. But in any event... Um, uh, I did. I watched his opening statement, which he must have deferred, um, and and I actually thought it did have some um, not coherence, but it, I think he had a. I think he was trying to make a point in his own way uh, because he all he did was talk about um, there's two sides to every story, and this is a tragedy, and um, you know, and I think what he was softening up for. Um, to have uh, a final argument that says uh, this was not intentional. Mm -hmm. So I think there was actually a point because he's well, charged with three intentional okay, homicides. Good, very good point because he is charged with several counts of intentional homicide. And that's the and issue. So, and so I could easily see first degree reckless um, yeah. being a lesser included. And that is, um, you know, not a mandatory life. Uh, and you know, and so I think, I don't think he's as crazy as he's being portrayed, um, based well, taking, on watching taking your shirt off during voir dire is kind of out there, but um. that was, that was pretty out there. Yeah. I, I wasn't there for that particular moment, which yeah. I was very upset. I wish I would have witnessed that in person, but, and as far as the judge goes, um, you know, she is doing her, I'll, I'll give her credit. Uh, she's doing her dead level best to try and um, uh, not create more appealable issues. And she's doing her best to create, you know, uh, a, a, you know, I don't know, um, civil, <laughs> you know, well, a civil atmosphere in the courtroom. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and so his disruptions, which I, I watched, uh, she had to, she dismissed the jury, and I watched about thirty minutes of her. Um, and by the way, you can go on Court TV and watch all this. So, um, and I watched about thirty minutes of her and him going back and forth. And she was starting to lose her patience, but I kind of don't blame her. But um, anyways, we can pick this up on the other side. All right, we'll be right back. We are back with more legal defense. So, so what's your take on the, on the whole, I don't know if you watched any of these I have watched some of it. I mean, it's, it's been sort of a, it would require more time than I have available uh, to follow it 
as closely as I'd like to, but just a couple things. Number one, um, I'm sure you're aware of this and it's been on the news, but Mr. Brooks has been uh, injecting a lot of the, what we call sovereign citizen uh, principles in this case. And some of our listeners might be familiar with this concept. In fact, some of our listeners might even be self-proclaimed sovereign citizens. So I'm not going to comment on whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Just that the concept is that there's the laws of the United States are such that one can theoretically remove him or herself from jurisdiction by claiming to be a sovereign citizen. And there, it's not completely made up from, you know, fiction. There's, there's some basis for this. It's just that it's not accepted anywhere um, <laughs> as a, as a real basis. Why don't you, why don't you like maybe walk the listeners through a little bit about what, okay. The, it, the basis it's based is. on a couple of different things. One that um, the origins of our government and the way that overall separation of powers is designed to work and the manner in which jurisdiction is established over people is there's an argument out there that there can be subject matter jurisdiction because there are laws that are created to make certain things illegal. But in order to attach to an actual citizen, this argument is that the combination of the way the law was originally designed to work combined with the way that police forces that didn't exist at the time of the Constitution have now kind of just been added to that mix without specific um, federal constitutional approval combined with, and this is a little weird, but some um, international law principles. There's always this uh, convention on human rights that happened sometime, I think in the late 1960s, 1970s in Mexico city that made a a worldwide proclamation with questionable authority that no government has the right to exercise personal jurisdiction over someone who claims to be a, a citizen of the world and not and doesn't voluntarily subject themselves to the the physical jurisdiction of any particular place. So I don't know if you've seen this before, John, but there's, you know, you can get a license that says I give myself the right to drive because I'm a sovereign citizen and I don't need your license because it's up to me. Um, <laughs> those kinds of things. And it sounds goofy. It really does. I mean, when you hear some of the things that, that, people in this movement say it, it sounds particularly off the wall, but it is, you know, it's not completely just made up there. There is, I've seen some of the um, invocations of um, sovereign. I witnessed one yesterday. Yeah. Really? In a courtroom in Southern Wisconsin where I walked in well before my case was being called and he was sparring with the judge about how, he judge didn't have any jurisdiction over him and uh, you know and and the judge was and he also cited dred scott mm-hmm. as as an opinion that said because he was an african-american gentleman and he says well dred scott says that i'm not a citizen yeah so that hasn't been reversed the judge what that hasn't been reversed. well it has been re- it was reversed by the uh by the but an amendment to the yeah yeah that way but, um, but i mean nobody came out and said <laughs> you hereby reverse dread scott you know right but um uh you know so and i actually represented somebody who was a tax protester he refused to pay taxes 
uh, because he says he didn't have to right. because he was not a citizen right. of the United States. Hey, you know what? Just, and, I don't uh, want to take up too much time. It was also in front of Judge Statmiller, by the oh, way. Oh, great. I don't want to take up too much time on this issue, but there have been successful challenges in the past, say, for example, in the Amish community. You know about this, right? That that they have based the argument is that they don't have to subject themselves to eligibility for military service, not because of conscientious objector status, but because they live in a separate society. I mean, there, there've been some, some semi successful challenges to, has that been recognized? Uh, not, not like on a national, you know, published case, but it's something that comes up occasionally, you know, and that applies to taxpayer well, status too. I know that there've been situations where, that has been taken into consideration. I was thinking about starting my own church anyway. Well, yeah, we all should. You know, I mean, I, you know. I really, I think that's an interesting area of law. I'd like to explore a little bit more. Maybe we can talk about that someday more at length, but um, uh, what, what the basis is to recognize the tax exempt status of particular religions, like the mainstream, like the, the ones that are well known, obviously, you know, Christianity, Judaism, um, you know, um, Islam, uh, you know, those are obvious ones, but there's all kinds of ones. Even a lot of Native Native American religions, um, a lot of. Uh, um, but then, you know, I, I guess you could you could just say that you're a sect of one of those, and then start your own thing, which a lot of people have done, and turn into cults. My, um, you know, I don't think I've ever told you this before, but my brother is what's called a pastafarian. Have you heard of this before? No, um, he's a certified, publicly ordained minister in the um, in the Pastafari Church, and what it is is that um, the all-knowing, omnipotent Creator is actually known as Spaghetti Man, and <laughs> and um, not Chef Boyardee. Well, it's it's p- patterned after <laughs> Chef Boyardee. I think that Chef Boyardee is actually kind of like the the. Um, what do you call it? The, uh, uh, well, like the savior, you know, so to speak. But anyway, <laughs> he, uh, well, I, I know he's doing it simply for amusement, but, um, yeah, he actually does have a certificate that says he's an ordained minister in the Pastafari church. Um, yeah. so, so anybody can do anything, but, um, you know, so what I would say is, um, getting back to, to the Brooks trial, um, it's it's uh, I think he's got a path forward, but, you know, one of the things that I questioned was whether or not there should have been a change of venue here or at least bring in. I mean, it's obviously national news, but at least bring in a jury from a different county. Well, um, yeah, the the standard there, it's, it's actually very complicated. And this might be a case that. I know they had the same sort of issues in the Avery second trial where you have to demonstrate more than the fact that you can't get a fair trial in the county of original jurisdiction. You have to show that there'd be a difference in a different county. (laughs) And that's kind of, you know, this event obviously was international news with public outcry. I don't care where you live in what state you live or what country you live in. There's, there has been shock and um, a lot of disgust based on the, the what happened. I mean, how do you show that a different county would make any difference? Well, I mean, certainly 
if jurors knew somebody who was related to somebody or knew what, you know, they'd probably be kicked off the jury anyway, um, hopefully by the judge, you know, if there was an actual personal knowledge. But in that community, I'm sure that there was probably some, everybody knows somebody who knows somebody who was affected by it. I mean, our, our own good friend who has a practice in Waukesha, uh, his family is friends with the family that had, you know, there was a victim of one of the. Well, I'll, I'll tell you a lot of the, cause I did sit in through some of the jury selection and a lot of the, um, uh, the folks there either knew somebody or, you know, they had some, you know, relationship with uh, somebody that was there or, um, or, and there was a lot of police officers there. And of course, everybody responded to that. Right. Mm-hmm. And there was a guy, there was a guy that was on the SWAT team and the judge asked him, well, did you talk to other people about it? Yeah. Did you form an opinion about it, about his guilt or innocence? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Can you put that aside? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, that's what he said. Okay. So that, you know, and there's, so, a, there's a perfect example of a phantom juror, someone who like really wants to be on the jury, but and knows <laughs> the right things to say to stay on the jury. Well, yeah. I don't know if he ultimately got picked, but, <clears throat> um, you know, that's the typical way that the judges try and keep people from avoiding jury service is just saying, you know, well, no matter what you think, uh, can you put that aside? Yeah. And another, feel another way of asking that question yes. is, are you a good person? Do, do, I mean, can yeah. you be a good person? Oh yeah, I can be a good person. Of course I can. Who's going to say, nah, I'm a bad person. <laughs> no, no, I'm horrible. I'm horrible. Well, some people did. Some people did say, um, no, they couldn't put it right. aside. And that couldn't, you know, that's you know, just and, being honest. And for I don't know. I mean, yeah. obviously, I don't know if I were ever in that. I'll never get picked for jury duty. I wish I would because I think it would be an amazing experience. But I would love to. But I would love to. Yeah, you know, even in that situation, it'd be really hard to say. You'd have to have an extremely uh, dedicated approach to keeping an open mind to be able to sit on that jury. I mean, just you know, we've all seen the videos and the in the horror basically of what happened. Hey dude, we got to quit. It's we're out of time. This always happens. We've got a ton more to talk about. We'll pick it up. next. All right. But uh, have yourself a good weekend. Mr. Birdsall. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. (laughs) Not yet, but we'll get in there. All right. Tune in next week as you can every week right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. This has been legal defense with Kirk and John. Have a great weekend, everybody.